0: So some of you guys have kind of started coming to RUF more recently and maybe haven't been here for this whole series. Uh, So I want to say two things. First, you really should join the GroupMe um, because after this semester is over, if you're not on our email list or on the GroupMe, it might be hard for us to let you know about stuff that we'll have coming up in the beginning of the fall. Also, if you're around this summer, we'll let you know about Summer RUF, which will be happening on Tuesday nights most likely at Midtown Fellowship like we did last summer. Um, so that's one thing to tell you. Um, we hope that we don't like, lose track of you over the summer and aren't able to connect with you again. The other thing I wanna say is if you've joined this series kind of after we've been going for a little while, then you might have missed this talk that I gave about singleness. And so I want you to know, I gave the talk on singleness first, not because singleness is like inferior to marriage. I think one of the hardest things to do when you're talking about relationships is to hold up both marriage and singleness as valid, good callings um, that God has and that are they're both in their own way really countercultural ways to live. But I know that Christian churches, particularly conservative, kind of evangelical, Bible-believing churches, however you want to call them, tend to idolatry, uh, sort of an idolatry of marriage and family. Uh, I've heard people say, for instance, that you know, marriage is the foundation of society and the world, and I'm like, no, Jesus is the foundation. We just sang about you know, the solid rock, and it's not marriage. Marriage points us to the one who has um, promised to marry himself to his people, and as we're gonna see tonight, marriage is one of the ways that God teaches us about his love, it's a beautiful way but it doesn't mean that everybody should be married, and if you're not married, then you get God's plan B. Um, So I I hope you understand that. Jesus was single, Paul was single, though he probably was married beforehand. We don't know uh, how he ended up single. Either his wife died or she left him when he became a Christian, it's hard to know. Um, But singleness is a valid calling. I myself was single into my 30s, and um, there are, things that you can do for the kingdom as a single person that are harder to do as a married person and vice versa. Um, So I just want you to know that. If you want to go back and hear that message, then uh, it's on the Belmont RUF podcast. Um, So I podcast all those messages and I think I'm caught up even from last week, right? All right. So tonight though, we're going to look at marriage, God's design, his good design for marriage. We're gonna look at how God has given marriage as a way to teach us about his love. We're gonna talk about how marriage can be uh, for the good of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom still applies as an overarching command to single people and to married people. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about some kind of practical stuff uh, at the end. All right, you ready? So to get into this, um, I love this quote by Tom Smith. He's at the University of Chicago. He said this a number of years ago. He says, if there was a product that you could offer to the marketplace that would let you live longer, be twice as happy, and have better and more frequent sex, you'd probably earn billions of dollars. And there is such a product. The product is marriage. So even in talking about marriage, you actually have to come across against some stereotypes, particularly from the media, uh, about how, particularly, like, did you know that married people have more, better, and frequent sex? All the statistics, all the polls bear that out, have for years and years and years and years. You would not get that message from the media, certainly, right? So even in talking about God's good design, we're having to come against maybe some misunderstandings about the alternatives and how they're not all they're cracked up to be. But most everybody in here is still single, so I don't have to tell you that, right? Um, Let's read what Paul has to say about marriage. It's in Ephesians chapter five. It's on that paper if you're following along. I'm actually gonna read verse one of chapter five and then jump down to verse 20. Now I know if you were looking at a Bible, even a Bible on your phone, that there's always like a little break at verse 21. That's really a bad place to put a break. Those little breaks, those little subheadings, like. Uh, husbands and wives that usually are there after verse 20, before verse 21. Um, those are the, not in the text of the scripture. Those are put there by the editors and the translators to help you kind of follow the long. But that's a really bad place to put this one. As a matter of fact, I always refuse in a wedding to read Ephesians 5:21 and following unless we read verse 20. Because you really miss the point if you start with, wives, submit to your husbands, and you cut off what he says before, which is submit one to another. That's the framing verse for that whole section, and actually for slaves and masters, and for children and parents as well. That submit one to another is the overarching command, and then there's different ways that that plays out. But even a bigger overarching command is in verse 1, and so I'm at least going to touch on that first. This is God's word. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. One of the things you'll see as we read in the Bible, particularly here in Ephesians, is that God never just gives us bare commands. They're always anchored in something he's done or something about who he is. We are to imitate God as beloved children Walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself for us. And that continues all through this passage. Jump down now to verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, as we dig into this, the first thing is that marriage is God's idea. And it exists first to proclaim that God himself is a faithful spouse. Now, Paul um, quotes Genesis here. Uh, I think that's interesting, even though it was, you know, millennia before the days of the Greeks and Romans, and their culture was pretty different from the Jewish culture. Still, Paul thinks that what God said in Genesis is relevant, and so do we today. And part of the reason is because Jesus says that this passage is still relevant and has much to teach us. Why is that? Because God created marriage as a way to teach us about his love, as we'll see later. He is a faithful spouse. We saw that in Hosea. It's not just the promise that he will put an end to war and make a covenant with all of creation, bring healing to the earth, but over and over he says, I will betroth you to me One of my favorite verses in the Bible, if you get this verse, you go a long way towards understanding the heart of Christianity. It's Isaiah 54, verse 5, where God says, Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is your name. And a lot of the problem I think people have in trying to understand what Christianity is really about is they think of God as either the one who made us and rules over us and therefore we need to grovel uh, in front of him, or they think of him as just the one who loves us so much he doesn't really care how we live. Of course, I don't know anybody that loves and doesn't care about how you live. Right, But the Bible doesn't say you have to choose one of those. It actually says you don't understand who God is if you think he's one or the other. Your maker, the one who made you, the one who said this is how I made you to live, this is how I made you to flourish as a human being, is the one who marries himself to you and loves you passionately, didn't just create you to be his little worker bee, didn't just create you so that he can sort of just be checking off a little list like Santa Claus, whether you were naughty or nice, right? And that goes a long way, I think, to correcting maybe the way a lot of religious people understand God and understand Christianity. This marriage idea is really important. That's why Paul says in verse 32, I am talking about Christ and the church. Well, of course he's talking about both, but the point is, which is primary? Did God look down and see, oh, look at these these human beings, this quaint little custom they have where they like to commit to each other and go through all this rigmarole um, and and, and whatnot, I think I can use that as an illustration. No, that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created marriage to teach us about His love. Marriage is to model God's faithfulness. That's why um, divorce is so grievous. I'm not saying that there aren't times when it is allowable, but it's always grievous, right, because the intention of marriage is to show God's faithful love. Marva Dawn, a Lutheran theologian who's passed on now, but I I love her in so many ways, she says the main purpose of marriage is to display for all the world to see the mystery of Christ's fidelity to and saving work for his bride through hell and through high water. That means marriage is a signpost. This is one of the more important things to understand as well. Like if you were coming to Nashville, maybe you were moving to Nashville for the first time to come here to college, and you got to Lebanon and you see a sign on I-40 that says Nashville, 30 miles. You wouldn't just pull over to the side of the road and be like, yes, here I am. No, because that's a signpost. It's pointing you to something, and so is marriage pointing us to something. Marriage is not heaven itself and that's good news. I always say this whenever I do a wedding. Marriage is a signpost. That's good news for people in this room who want to be married and are not. It's good news for people in this room who are married and the marriage is not all that they thought it would be and they're disappointed and frustrated. Marriage is a signpost. It's not the thing itself. Marriage is not a human institution but it's not heaven, it is God's idea. Even though you see it in almost every culture, it's not just because all cultures happen to decide that they needed an institution to protect vulnerable childbearing females, as some sociologists and evolutionary psychologists claim, it's because God made us as his image bearers to be committed and to be committed to. And what the Bible says that we all actually come from a pair of humans who had a perfect relationship with God, of course you would expect to see the vestiges of that, sometimes pretty distorted, but still the glimmer of truth kind of passed through into all different cultures. Marriage is not something that evolved. Marriage is actually something that devolved. Because Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship before sin entered the world. And they walked with God in the cool of the day and enjoyed that perfect, faithful love with Him as well. We are made to commit and to be committed to. We are, it's just the reality of God's design. And even when we try to push back against the way God made us, there's something about us that still resonates with what we were made for. Now, you need to understand this, though, that the Bible's teaching on marriage was countercultural in its day. I- even, even this passage, many of you, when I read a passage about wives submitting to their husbands, like, oh gosh, here we go, these old fashioned notions. But no, you need to understand, actually, um, the Bible's teaching on, on, for women was never designed to oppress women actually part of the design of marriage is to protect and honor women i put this passage down um, on on the paper because i wasn't sure if you've ever read this or even know this is in the bible but paul says in 1 corinthians 7 that the husband and he starts with what the husband should do the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights that means he should have sex with her and likewise the wife to her husband why Because the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, everybody in the first century said, well, of course, wives have to give sex to their husbands because he owns their body. But what he says next, nobody would have expected. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Nobody was saying that in the first century. Nobody. The Bible is saying that this is to be a partnership where the wife has authority over the husband's body like the, the husband has authority over the wife's body. You know, um, people are often surprised to hear that there were some Christians, even Christians that you would be surprised to know that got this and understood this. For instance, in Puritan New England, there was a case where a woman came to the elders of the church I know this will blow your mind if you think you understand who the Puritans were. You probably don't, really, especially if you've only ever read English literature and you've never read the Puritans themselves. But there was a Puritan church. The wife came to the church elders and said, my husband is not having enough sex with me. And they disciplined the husband for not having enough sex with his wife. Paul, actually in in 1 Corinthians 7, even says to the husband and wife, you're not allowed to quit having sex unless it's for a purpose and for a short season. It's a big deal. We'll talk about that when we talk about sex. We'll have a whole week on that. But, but what I want you to understand, in Paul's day, when he's writing this, to 1 Corinthians thing, wives were seen as possessions whose chief role was to bear children so that the husband's lineage would carry on. But what does the Bible teach about wives? It says that they're to be regarded as helpers. And I know some people are bothered by that term because it seems demeaning. It's not. It's actually a word that's usually used of God himself. God is Israel's helper. It's not a demeaning word. And um, it's a word that speaks about companionship and partnership. In Proverbs 2.17, it says this, Now, it's talking about the adulteress, but it gives you a little insight into God's intention for marriage when it says the adulteress forsakes the companion of her youth. That's a synonym for her husband. So wives are to be regarded as companions, not possessions. That's even in the Old Testament, right? Psalm 55 uses this word for one who is our closest friend with whom we enjoy sweet fellowship. Becoming one flesh is way bigger than just sex. And look at this passage, if you've never read this, this might blow your mind. Deuteronomy verse chapter 24 verse five, if a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him, why? For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he married. That's in the Bible. Right? And who's the one who is to benefit from that? The wife. So the Bible has a lot of countercultural things. Has marriage, particularly in Christian settings, been used to oppress women? Absolutely. But it was never intended that way. And sin needs to be called sin. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Another thing to understand about marriage, the biblical idea of marriage. And you see this in verse 31, where Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is a covenant commitment, not a contract with loopholes. Leaving and cleaving, joining together, is really the language of commitment, not convenience. Theologian John Murray says understanding the difference between a covenant and a contract is key to understanding marriage. What's one of the key differences? Well, in a contract, both people come in and they negotiate the terms. You give here, I'll give here, right? Now, there is an aspect of that in marriage which we'll talk about. But the terms about what marriage is to be is not actually up to you to invent. You could say, well, we have a marriage, but it's an open marriage. Well, you don't get to say that. It's not a marriage. God says, this is what marriage is. He determines it, and when you enter into the covenant of marriage, there are certain stipulations, and if you don't want to abide by them, then you're not actually married as the Bible would understand it. Oh, you might be married in the eyes of the state, and you might have even went through, but you know, for instance, things like prenuptial agreements, cut out the heart of this idea. It is to be throwing in your whole being with another person. Marriage is about giving yourself in whole-souled commitment. And here's, I just wanna say this. Beware, not all prenuptial agreements, do you know what those are? That's where you're like, look, you know, if we get divorced, you don't get any of my money, you know, whatever, all those sorts of things. Not all prenuptial agreements, are written down or spoken out loud. But you undercut the heart of marriage if you go into marriage with sort of like your fingers crossed behind your back. Now, if you're in an abusive marriage, right, the Bible has things to say about when divorce is appropriate, when leaving is appropriate, okay? Not saying that, but you don't go into marriage with like your fingers crossed behind your back, if I don't really enjoy this, then I'm out of here, You could think that that's a way to try out marriage, but it's really trying out something that is just a shell of marriage. It's a form, but it's not really marriage. Marriage is about friendship. It's not about sexual attraction with hopefully a friendship developing over time. It's about friendship leading to romance that comes because of this whole-souled commitment. It's about partnering together to become one flesh But again, in the Bible, one flesh doesn't just mean your physical body, it means joining together. And you see this actually with Adam and Eve in the garden. They are told together to glorify God by taking the cultivated part of creation, the garden, and extending it. They were to do that together as partners. We'll talk about that in a bit when we talk about the kingdom. So that's the first point. Marriage is God's design and it's a good design. The second is it teaches us about the gospel and is one of the ways God helps us deal with our brokenness and our selfishness. Again, as I said, there are no bare commands in the Bible and what you see here, like Paul all through this passage, like sometimes you're not even sure is he talking about Jesus or is he talking about husbands or wives. He kind of goes back and forth again because the marriage is the kind of the paradigm for, for what marriage is to be like, but also the sacrifice of Christ is the model for how husbands are to live. What Jesus has done for us is to set us free to love one another. All throughout this passage, Christ's sacrificial love for his church is the model for how men are to love their wives. But this is actually true for all relationships. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, the same apostle Paul says this, And he, meaning Jesus, died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is what Paul's saying here. Submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ, honoring what he has done, should drive all your relationships, That's why this series is titled Gospel-Driven Relationships. How does the gospel compel you to live not for yourself, but for others? Marriage is one of the many ways that that is to be seen. And I'll just say, there's nothing like committing to a relationship, really committing, like putting a ring on someone's finger to show you how selfish you really are and hopefully drive you to Jesus for help. Third point, marriage is about joining together in a covenant to advance the kingdom of God in the world. Now, where do we see this? We see this with the call to leave, cleave, and weave, and particularly the way its context is in Genesis. Genesis, marriage is given, but also Adam and Eve are given a call, like I said, to take all of the, or to sort of be, be about beautifying and bringing out all the God-glorifying um, potential that God had built into his creation. Adam and Eve were set to work to do that, right? So what does leaving, cleaving, and weaving mean? Well, leaving means the couple is to start a new family and to cut the bond and the dependence on the parents one of my favorite professors dr david jones loved his class on ethics and another class he talked on sex ethics was fabulous he says there is to be a decisive establishment of a new social unit that also means you're to leave old patterns of how you have lived wendy and i talk about this in premarital counseling all the time your family tradition Your family tradition cannot determine how the new family will live. Both of those family traditions may offer wisdom, either wisdom about what could work or what you don't really want to do, but neither of them gets to rule. Unless the Bible says it, everything must be on the table and open for debate when you come into marriage. That's what it means to leave. And there are a lot of people that enter into marriage that haven't really left. They still call their parents every day. Whenever they have a fight, they look to their mom or their dad to help referee. That's not leaving. But you can also fail to leave by being driven by anger towards your parents that you can't let go of, that you can't move past. So you can be fail to leave by saying they get to have say in everything we do, and every decision we do, or you can fail to leave by saying I'm not gonna listen to anything they say and I'm just gonna be driven to do the opposite of whatever they say. Neither of those are very, very helpful, very healthy, right? Um, It also means that your relationship with, uh, sorry, um, second here, cleave. So leaving means leaving your family. Cleaving means bonding with your spouse in a strong, loving commitment. That means that nothing, not your work, not your ministry, not your parents or your friends, should come between you and your spouse. You should have no relationship, particularly with the opposite sex. It's closer than your relationship with your spouse. It means for many of you, the next few years will be a time of great flux and change, as Paige mentioned. See, you knew I was gonna preach on that, didn't you? It's going to be a time of flux. And chances are, if you don't marry your best friend of the opposite sex, they probably won't stay your best friend for long. And it would be inappropriate for you to not sort of get in the way of that kind of relationship if somebody does get married. It also, though, means that relationship with your spouse is more important than the relationship you have with your children. Children, the Bible says, are to be trained up, to go, not your marriage. Marriage is to last. Children trained up in the way they should go, and then they're to go, okay? Now, what happens, you know, one of the times when divorce happens, there are certain periods when divorce tends to happen. First year of marriage, fifth year of marriage. Another one is when all the children leave the house and go off to college. Why is that? Because sometimes, you know, a married couple will realize that they weren't still putting their relationship first. They were basically like in a business partnership. My wife says this to me sometimes. She feels like this. And I I have to pay attention to that. Like, we're not just in this to raise up kids. They don't take the focus, right? And some of you kids maybe need to hear that right maybe you demand things I don't know um, from your parents or or the kind of um, relationship with them that maybe you shouldn't have I don't know we talk about that if you want some time what about weaving weaving means we're to work together we're to work together so you know CS Lewis talks in the four loves about how lovers are always doing like face to face but marriage is this interesting thing it's face to face but it's also side by side side by side working the garden for the good of the kingdom. Weaving means tilling the garden together. And like I said, Adam and Eve are jointly told to take dominion over the creation as stewards to bring out all the God-glorifying potentially built into this world. Adam and Eve, by the way, were not given carte blanche to do whatever the heck they wanted with the creation. The Bible never says that. Um, they they were called to be stewards and there were stipulations for how they were to honor the creation they didn't just get to do whatever they wanted but um, husbands and wives are to use their gifts to set each other free to do the work of the kingdom Um, I get a little bit of this now this semester I've been teaching uh, hymnology on Mondays but often Mondays are my day when I basically am like catching up on email and office kind of stuff and then I get to clean the house so that my wife can do the ministry of Monday night small group. All right, now this semester, I didn't get to do that as much because I had a class. So sometimes she comes home and the, the house is a mess. But, but that's actually a wonderful thing to be able to do. To be able to say, like, my wife has a ministry. I can't do that ministry. Nobody's gonna do that ministry like she does. If you've come to Monday night, can I get an amen? All right? Amen. Yeah, so it, what can I do? I, well, I can make copies for her, even though I kind of forgot about that last night. Um, but, and I can clean the house, and I can try to get things ready, right? So that she can use her gifts. And she does likewise for me. Mar- marriage, you see, should model for the world that mutual submission is possible when the gospel has set us free and that relationships do not have to be a power struggle, but can actually be a reverse tug of war, trying to outdo one another in laying down our lives and our agendas. And that leads me to the last point. Well, the last point, except for some practical applications at the end. Marriage exists for more than just two. So if you ever come to a wedding that I do, this is kind of my little sermon that I I do at every wedding. Marriage is for more than just two. It's not about just finding one other person so that you can huddle together let this other person and just tune out the rest of the world forever. That kind of relationship, an old pastor friend of mine used to say is like two ticks on a dog with no dog like two people just sucking the life out of one another. And it may seem like that's what you want and that's what you were made for, for this other person who will complete you and be your soulmate. In reality, marriage is not just supposed to be about you getting all of your life and satisfaction out of another person. It really is for more than just two. Marriage does not exist as an end of itself. Even your closest relationships are to be a kingdom resource to be used for God's glory relationships are that way they're one of God's greatest gifts but here's the thing about God's good gifts the greatest gifts often make the most powerful idols what does that mean if you look to them for life itself rather than as good gifts of the one who loves you namely God if you disconnect the giver of the gifts from the gifts themselves and rather looking to them to help you remember how good and loving God is, you instead look to the gifts and try and get life out of them, they will break. They will break. Marriages become idolatrous when they exist for themselves rather than for the larger purpose of advancing God's kingdom. But that does not mean your marriage should be an excuse for you to become workaholics for the kingdom. We have a calling to keep our marriages alive, not just for our own enjoyment, but because our world and the church needs to know that the gospel makes a difference. I like this quote from William Doherty. He says, when I started out as a marriage therapist in the 1970s, I took the attitude that if somebody was thinking of getting out of a marriage, it was my job to help them figure out what was best for them as an individual. When they said things like, well, I'm not so sure if I'm being fair to the kids. I and a lot of my colleagues said, well, the kids will be fine if you're fine. A lot of you know that that's not true, right? Do do what you need to do for you, is what I would say. Where are you going to be happiness? Now I've realized that marriage, once you're in it, is not just a private lifestyle. There are a lot of stakeholders in it. Obviously, your spouse is a stakeholder and your children, but not just your dependent children, even your grown children, too. There's also your extended family, common friends, and a faith community, if you're in one. I see marriage now much more as something embedded in a community of people, all of whom have an interest or stake in the marriage. That's one of the reasons that divorce is so devastating. And it really is, right? And I know that many of you know that firsthand. But I also want to say that God has the power to break generational patterns, right? Does. But to live in a way that your marriage is for more than just the two of you, I always say this, that means you need more than the excitement of one day. When Wendy and I um, were gonna get married, I remember one of the first things the guy who did our premarital counseling, Mike Smith said, uh, during this engagement season, spend as much time working on your marriage as you do your wedding. Because so many people focus on the wedding. Whenever they have time together, they're doing wedding stuff to where the time to, to get married and then you know, presumably have sex for the first time, they feel like they don't even know each other anymore because all they've been doing is working on wedding stuff instead of like getting to know each other like they were doing when they were dating. Don't want to do that, <laughs> right? Marriage is, to, is, to, is, the wedding day is not big enough, no matter how amazing it is, no matter how much money you spend on it. It's not big enough to propel you to carry you through 20, 30, 40, 50 years being married to another sinner. No day can do that. So I always say this, we don't dress up you know, like this, we don't go through all this hoopla, just hoping to lift your emotions to such a fevered pitch that it will just carry you through forever. And it's like I told you, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, like I've, I don't think I've ever had somebody write their own vows, because when people try to write their own vows, they never write vows they always write how they're feeling at the moment. And how you're feeling at the moment is not big enough for marriage. You have to have something bigger. You take vows, and that's because marriage is hard. And here's one of the main reasons it's hard. I'm indebted to Tim Keller for this. I think if you want to dig into this more, his book, uh, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, is absolutely fabulous. I'll tell you one little tidbit that he says I think is so wise. He says, you never marry the right person. So many people think it's all about trying to find the right person. He says, you never marry the right person. And if you do marry the right person, they won't be the same person in five years and neither will you. So the point can't be making the best decision and and picking somebody. And never mind, you know, all the TV shows that are all about, you know, try and make sure you pick the right person, right? No, that's not what it's about. That's why the vows are so important, because there are two competing idolatries at work in most every marriage. The marriage idolatry, you might say the dependence idolatry, and the independent idolatry. What is is the marriage idolatry? The marriage idolatry is, I'm nothing and nobody unless I'm married. This is the person whose life is consumed by the desire and attempt to get married, and it's really the idol of traditional culture, You can read Jane Austen's novels and see this. She does a great job of pointing this out. Um, In other words, you only matter for your connection to a family. This person fears singleness, despises singleness, rather than enjoying it and saying, how then shall I glorify God in where he has me now? But then there's the independence idolatry, and that's the idol of our modern culture, and it's the one that a lot of you are bumping up to. It's like, yeah, I wanna be married, but I'm kinda pretty committed to staying safe by staying free. So how can I find another person to where we won't encroach on each other's freedom very much and yet still be there for one another? And it doesn't really work that way. To the degree that you're committed to somebody, you are no longer independent. I remember once years ago um, a, a, a couple we're having some struggles, and, and basically, you know, one of the people in the marriage said, I basically need to be free to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I'm like, okay, there's no, no kind of marriage can sustain that. No kind of real friendship can sustain that. To the degree that you are free, to that degree you will be alienated from other people. And, and marriage can't work when your real goal is to have the absolute bare minimum of commitment or people cramping your style. And I think sometimes, you know, people are always like, can I find somebody that has the same life goals as me uh, such that we won't have to change or we won't have to give up on some of our dreams. And I'm just going to say like there's your dreams and their dreams, but when you become a married couple, they have to be your dreams, plural. It doesn't really work to keep trying to pursue these completely two different independent things. Not really. And you're different now. If you're married, everything is different. So, the independent idolatry. The person seems to have an irrational fear of getting tied down and runs from relationships that begin to get serious. Now, that can be tied into trauma and your own story and hurt too, right? So you don't just snap your fingers and fix these two idolatries. Usually you gotta explore what is it that's driving me. Tim Keller said this once, that if you pull up your idols by the roots, you'll find your fears clinging to them. And usually they're rooted in pain that you've experienced and places where you've made kind of little fortresses to say I'll never be hurt that way again, right? So you don't just fix these things, but it is helpful to be aware of them. And it's helpful to know that often People get drawn to one another not just because of good reasons, but even because of how their flesh attracts one another. Wendy and I had somebody point this out to us, and I'd never thought of this before. But I, I think he was very right. He's like, look, Wendy, you know, like Kevin, you don't like, you're not very emotional. You're just kind of, kind of stayed and you know, not phased. But when you're around Wendy, who wears her feelings on her sleeve, well then you can feel like you've gotten better because you kind of feel things a little bit by osmosis when really you need to learn how to repent and and feel things even if that's scary. Similarly, Wendy, like Kevin's a rock, but you need to learn how to trust Jesus rather than just have Kevin around, right? I was like, oh, dang. You know, like I thought we were perfect for each other. Well, we're perfect for each other in some ways if we don't want to repent, you know? And, um, and so that's what I mean, like, as you get into marriage, sometimes you find that this, you had this perfect arrangement. Maybe you didn't even talk about it, but it just seemed so perfect, and now actually one person starts to become more holy and starts to repent of their manipulation, and all of a sudden it creates all this friction because your relationship was based on this really unhealthy patterns, right? So marriage has gotta have something bigger than just your feelings. Um, it has to have vows. And um, that brings us to the very last thing. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel to change us and heal our fears. I always say this in weddings. You take these vows either out of naivete or great faith. Who in the world could promise to love another sinner for richer or poorer, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, till death do you part when you don't know what the future holds? and you know that this person is gonna change, and you know you're gonna change. You have no idea what the future holds. How, how crazy is it to stand up before God and these witnesses and make that kind of promise, not knowing really even what you're getting into? What I say is you either take those vows out of naivete, or out of faith. Faith in the one who makes promises to you, who vows to love you, for richer or poorer, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. And here's the thing, his vows do not end with death. His vows were sealed by his death. Therefore, death can't undo them. The only way you can really enter into marriage in faith is to hear the vows that Jesus makes to you. Right? Because he promises to betroth himself to us. Your spouse can't make the promise to love you forever and ever and ever. Because even in a great marriage, you're gonna die one day. But Jesus will love you beyond the grave forever. And when you have that kind of security, then it changes the way all your other relationships are. You don't need to get all of your life all of your joy all of your meaning out of these relationships because these relationships can't handle that they weren't made for that i use this illustration sometimes i'll I'll say it again maybe some of you have heard it but you know it's it's really boring to work a job at which you're overqualified and at this stage in life sometimes you're working like these boring retail jobs and like you're brilliant amazing people right and then you like work like fast food because that's all you can find right it's boring But you know what? It's death to have to go into a job every day you know you can't possibly do it. When you think that your relationships, the relationships that you found that you think you can nurture and hold on to, when you think that those are big enough to give you what you long for, they will break. They were never made for that. They were made to point you to the truly faithful one who makes vows, like I said, that are not broken by death, but were sealed by his death. And that changes the way we live. And marriage, just like singleness, is to be a demonstration that we believe in that perfect spouse, and changes the way we live with other people. I'm gonna pray and then we'll sing the last song, right? Lord, thank you that you betroth yourself to your people. And Lord, I think about that passage and the fact that it's in the book of Hosea, a book where God tells his prophet to go take back his adulterous wife over and over and over again, and you say that's a picture of what it's like for you to be married to us. Lord, we think so highly of ourselves. Lord, thank you that you love us in our brokenness, in our fear, in our adulterous ways. May you heal us as we embrace and submit to the love you have for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll say one thing as they're coming up about submission. Uh, One of my professors in seminary said, you know, submission in my marriage, basically leadership in the Bible is always about bearing burdens. Leadership is about bearing burdens. It's not about getting to be in charge. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves, and you should be like that. He tells disciples, don't be like these Pharisees that lord their power over other people. Anyway, what Dr. Winner said one time was, you know, submission our marriage is when we've got this decision, we can't figure out what to do, and my wife's like, honey, I don't know what to do, you don't know what to do, let's pray about it, and then you have to make a decision. It's about burden bearing. It's not about getting to be in charge. Leadership is always about bearing burdens, and that goes a long way, I think, to defanging the way you might understand this submission thing. And before you figure out what it means for wives to submit to husbands, you have to figure out what does it mean to submit one to another, because that's the controlling verse for the whole section, and I think not enough people wrestle with that. All right, that's enough. Let's sing.